So we're in Exodus 4 tonight. You can turn there. Ambitiously, I started prepping for Exodus 4 through 6. And we didn't, we're not going to get that far. We're going to get through 4 tonight, and then we'll, uh, I think 5 and 6 will go together, because 5 is really small, so you want to try to jump it. So uh, we'll dig in. Um, verse 1, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. And then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a rod in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So remember, it's been 400 years since the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dealt with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So it would be as though we heard from God and he said something about, I'm the same God that was with George Washington, only double that time, right? So these are childhood fairy tales. He probably heard about him in his you know, at-home class. Um, when he went to school with the Pharaoh's palace, he wouldn't have heard these stories. But his mom probably would have shared them with him, that there was this God out there that saw after them. Um, so Moses has to do some things. There's a ton in this passage, but for context, um, the last time we met, or actually Exodus 1 and 2, the thing with Exodus is their life in, in Egypt isn't as good anymore, right? And so the the Hyksos dynasty, there's two, three pharaohs in a row that were actually of Shemitic descent. So they would have said, yeah, come on in, because in, by inviting the Hebrews, the Hebrews were a Shemitic family, Um but at this point in time, the Hamitic rulers take over, the Egyptian records show all that, and the Hamitic people would have hated the Shemites in their country. They would have been suspicious with them. So when the new pharaoh takes over, there's new law in the land, and they start giving harsh rules. So that's Genesis 1 and 2. God hears this. He raises up a guy like Moses. Moses try, tries doing things his own way. He fails. He's sitting out in the desert for 40 years, and he hears from God. Um, or as one of my uh, favorite teachers says, he's in the desert looking at his navel, which I thought that was a fun way of putting that. Um, of all the people in the tribe of Levi, he picks the one guy who's been sitting out in the desert for 40 years to do his work. And he still had a whole tribe of Levites back in Goshen or in Egypt that could have done this for him. Um, so God, Moses has a choice. He's wrestling with God in Exodus 4, what we're going to get tonight is here are all the ways that we as humans can argue with God to not do what we've been called to do. And they they tidy it up and do a nice chapter for us. And Moses has set this up. He initially says, um, who are you? What shall I say you're called? God says, I am who I am. Or in Japanese and Hebrew together, it's haya, haya. Anyways, we go into the Hebrew too. And that's sometimes they're funny words. Um, so here we are, Moses is talking to God, he's in the middle of this conversation, um, and they put a chapter break in there, I think in part because the first couple things, Moses isn't really challenging God, but in Exodus 4, then Moses answered and said, and the word answered there is as in a debate, like this is, now we're arguing with God, and he converts over to do that. So Moses has got this choice. He can follow God, who's never failed in a promise from the history of the beginning of the world, or he can take on his own thinking, which has failed at every point in his life. So Moses is, again, choosing himself, and we shouldn't pick on him too much because we do the same thing. So then Moses said, but suppose they will not believe or listen to my voice, 
but suppose is actually not in the Hebrew. Moses, this is a much more direct challenge. That but suppose they will not is actually one word, and it should read more like they won't believe me. And Moses is being super direct in that, and he's telling God that he won't be believed. So after the first question, we see an unbelief or a lack of faith and willingness. God gave him his word, and now Moses is doubting God's word, which seems amazing. However, God's talking out of a bush, so Moses is still taller, and maybe there's something there where he's just thinking he's hallucinating or something to that effect. Um, but these are examples for us. First Corinthians 10 says, these are things that are our examples. These are examples for us to look at and follow and study. If you want to know what God thinks, we should be in the word. We too then say but to God all the time. And the buts are pretty common. But we don't have time. But we don't have the money. But I'm busy right now. But I don't have skill. But I'm at Taylor's Falls and I lost track of time. <laughs> that one's for you, Levi. Um, I don't know the right people. Or in this case, I think Moses is scared. And he's saying, but I'm scared. I don't have the talent and I don't have the skill to do what you're calling me to do. Um, the but in this case and through this chapter is going to cost Moses some of the most amazing blessings that God's going to put on people. And by the end of this chapter, the person who gets these blessings is going to be Aaron, not Moses. And later on, Moses' doubt's going to cost him a trip to the Holy Land. And I mean, this is kind of the famous doubting of Moses. So in verse two, it says, so the Lord said to him, what's in your hand? And he said, a rod. The word for rod there is basically a, not a stick you find in the forest, but a proper walking stick um, that he would have. Um, and I think this is kind of cool because God doesn't answer Moses' complaint. His thing is they won't listen to me and they won't believe me. And God's going to use the most mundane thing in the world to show Moses that he doesn't need what he thinks he needs. Right? If you want people to believe you, it's not you that has to do that work, it's me. So he says, let's take that stick in your hand and he'll deal with that. Nothing fancy or anything like that. Moses has gone from being a palace child because he was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh and now he's holding a stick, wearing linens, hanging out with sheep. And he's actually kind of living there and is going to fight to stay there. God uses what we have consistently throughout the Bible. He used five loaves and two fish to feed a crowd of people. He used Samson's donkey's jawbone to kill a bunch of Philistines. So throughout the Bible, we see God using what people have, not what they want. Um, so in this case, this simple stick in verse 20, if you skim down there, is going to be called the rod of God in just a few sentences here. So, and the rod of God is not elaborate. It's not a movie theater prop. Um, this, is the, this is a shepherd's stick that God's going to use and do some things. This is the same stick that he was herding sheep with that's going to part the Red Sea. It's the same stick that he's going to hold up and fight the armies of God are going to, or the children of Israel are going to win battles while this thing's being held up. But right now it's just a stick, right? And it's worn out and beat up and whatnot, but it'll be held in much higher esteem very shortly. Verse three, then he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. So Moses fled for it. Now Moses has been living in this part of the desert for 40 years. Unlike all of us that are scared of little bugs. <laughs> Moses is a shepherd living in the wilderness. The average snake is not going to scare a guy like Moses. So we can assume the word serpent there is a, a scary serpent or something that would be poisonous because Moses' reflex is to get the heck away from it. Um, and he's a pro. And he has no longer has a stick in his hand, so he can't really deal with the stick that's in front of him. So then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand, take it by the tail. Anyone that's been in the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts knows... You don't pick up snakes by the tail. That's a bad idea. Where do you pick up snakes? 
You pick the head up so that it doesn't bite you. So God's asking a veteran wilderness guy to do something that's the opposite of what we think you should do. He's asking Moses to just have a little bit of faith. Moses, of course, does it, which means he he knows he's talking to God and not hearing an illusion. Because no matter what the voice is in my head, if it tells me to pick up a poisonous snake by the tail, I'm probably not going to listen to it. But Moses realizes he's talking to God and he does it. Um, So he's taking these small steps of faith. In this case, Moses is overcoming a fear of things that are outside of himself. In the next passage, God's going to have him address a fear that's his own inside of himself. So that they may believe, verse 5, that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Um, I Google search pictures of leprosy. Worth your time if you like the gore but not something I would show a general audience. It's pretty nasty. So he's pulling his hand out, and it is a horror movie kind of image in, in front of his face. And he said, verse 7, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom and drew it out again, and drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like his other flesh. So this is a second kind of fear that Moses has to deal with. The first was a danger. Now it's he's dealing with his own weakness, disease, things that come from inside of us, can also get us in the way of doing God's work. And you can't run from a snake. Or you can't, I'm sorry, you can run from a snake. You can't run from your own hand, right? So there's a different kind of fear there. Um, He has to overcome the self-weakness. I got caught up on the word bosom. It's an interesting word search. Sometimes bosom means the chest, especially for women. It means the lap. Remember we had the thing where they were making vows and they said, put your hand under my leg. The bosom can also mean the backside. Whatever it is, Moses is tucking this hand in between his legs, under his arm. Bosom's like anything that's like inside of you where it would be nice and comfortable, right? So a place you keep your fingers to keep them from being warm. In that sense, when he's putting his hand in and pulling it out, it had to be terrifying because he probably put it inside of his robe or something like that, obeying God and then doing it. Um, Disease isn't necessarily overcome instantly. The miracle in this case is that God overcomes it instantly. And God can do these kinds of things. So, again, Moses takes another small step of faith. Uh, I'm sure when God said the second time, put your hand in your bosom, he did it very quickly because it would have had to be terrifying. The other thing with leprosy, and we see this all the way up through the first century, leprosy is a death sentence. It's not curable. It's not healable. It's one of those diseases that shows up in the Bible a lot because it isn't a curable thing. And it's not something that you can really, at least in this period of history, they didn't know what to do with it at all. Um, Verse eight, then it will be if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And if it shall be, they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. The first two signs should convince a reasonable person. If somebody throws a snake in the ground or a stick in the ground, it turns into a snake. You should believe there's something supernatural happening. If you see disease come and go off a hand, it could be a sleight of hand. It could be a trick, but you got to be skeptical to think I'm dealing with a magician here, right? A believing person would go, whoa, cool trick. But a skeptical, critical person would say, I think you could be just fooling me and tricking my eyes right now. So that, that idea that the first two signs, the snake and the disease, could just be tricks, 
That third sign, no way. You're turning a whole river into blood. There's no trick that you can do that would make that happen, right? So if he's going to turn water into blood, um, that's got to be something that, that would require a god to do it. Not only that, remember the Nile River to the Egyptians is the most significant part of their life. It's their lifeblood. It's their source. It represents the god Isis, which travels through all of Egypt, and Isis is their god. So for the water to turn into blood, that means Isis would have to lose and Yahweh would have to win. Um, so the first two turn it back. The third then would be judgment. So God so far is, or Moses has so far said, I'm not able to. God's answer to that back in chapter three was, I am able to. He didn't really address Moses's capacity. He just said, I'm able. Now Moses says, they won't listen to me. And God says, they will listen to me. And here's how, and here's how, and here's how. So God's basically addressing Moses' concerns, which is a lot of grace from the God of the universe. Verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but now I am, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Lots of people have opinions about what this is. Um, Moses is still doubting himself, even though he's seeing miracles. And Jesus talked about that too, where he's like, if I show you miracles, that doesn't mean you'll believe necessarily. So Moses is seeing God do wonderful things right in front of him. And the bush is probably still burning, right? But it doesn't give him stronger faith. In fact, it causes him to doubt even more and to contrast with God what's going on. When he says, oh, my Lord, there in verse 10, that's a form of pleading or begging. Oh, my Lord, please do this. And the slow of speech, slow of tongue, um, the speech is a word that tends to have to do with the mouth. And the tongue is a word we would translate as tongue too. In other words, it was more that there's an and there. There's two things that are wrong. One is Moses might think that he's not that smart, that he can't talk very fast, and that's a problem. The other could be that there's actually a physical difficulty where there's something where he can't talk right. Like my gap in my teeth gives me a lisp. And I remember being a kid and having to do the popsicle sticks with a speech therapist and all that sort of thing. Um, and you're taught how to talk again. Well, Moses probably didn't have a good speech therapist and he wouldn't have had popsicle sticks there would have been reeds in the nile and that sort of thing but now he's been doing it for 40 the other thought is he's been with sheep for 40 years that will affect your language and if you're not talking to people and you're not practice practicing it the muscles in your mouth actually slow down and get weaker because you're not using the muscles another thought on this is he grew <laughs> that's better than shadow. Another thought on this is that he grew up with two different languages. Remember for the first few years of his life, he would have been with his Hebrew mom, but he would have been in the palace and he would have been with an Egyptian mother. So he would have been learning two languages and it might be that he's not confident in Egyptian because his first language was actually Hebrew because he was raised by his Hebrew mom. Either way, Moses is arguing with God still. So he said, Moses says, who am I? God says, I am. Moses says, I need a name. God says, I am who I am. Moses says, they won't listen. God says, they'll listen to me in three different ways. Now Moses says, I can't. What does God say back? Verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth, and I will teach you what to say. In other words, God's completely in charge. And there are some things that we're born with. God gave them to us because he wanted to glorify himself through our infirmities and through our things we're not able to do right away. So God's teaching them. Also, think of the offer God's making here. 
I will be with your mouth. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to take care of that. I'll heal you. I'll fix that for you. It's interesting, and this is a really, this is a difficult passage because if God's taking credit for the mute, the deaf, the seeing, and the blind, that's a lot of things that we as humans consider bad. And God's saying, no, if they're born that way, I made them that way. And I put them in people's life for a reason. And God's doing something with that. So God takes full responsibility for how he created people. Um, The other thought on this, and I thought this was a wonderful thought, every human being on the planet has been born imperfect. There's something about us that's not perfect. And God made us all that way, some more than others. But who made us? God did. And he got, he, there are people that are born certain ways. I love the fact, one of my favorite things at Bethel right now is the BUILD program. And what I like about the BUILD program, it's nice. They're getting a work, school to work study program that's amazing in the BUILD program. But what I really like about the BUILD program is it brings people into our community that are good for us to have in the community. It helps us with patience, with kindness. We get to see kindness modeled in classrooms. Um, So I just think it's a wonderful thing because God builds communities of people, not just individuals. So, um, and a huge takeaway from verse 11 is God doesn't need our talent because he also gave us gifts. He doesn't need our gifts. What he wants is our heart. Um, So God's offering to help Moses with this speech. And I'm thinking... Moses, take the deal. This is a great deal. Moses at this point could just say, great, I'm yours. I'll do what you want me to do. Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just said, here I am. I'll do what you need me to do. But not Moses. We get to see in the Bible all the flaws of our heroes. And he says, verse 13, but he said, but being an argumentative clause, but he said, oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. That's a... that's King James for send anybody but me. I'm an 80-year-old shepherd. Remember shepherds we saw with the story of Jacob? Shepherds were like the teenage kids. So this is, this is a guy who should have been at another place in his life, and he's not. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. I think it's interesting that, again, this goes back to those other Levites out there, Moses, and he's basically giving Moses what he wants, like send whomever else, and he says, okay, I'll send Aaron too, um, but he's going he's gonna to want Moses to continue to be a part of it. Moses keeps doubting God. He keeps making excuses. Moses made excuses, and he's not showing the heart to follow God at all. Um, I like this because this is the first person in the Bible we've seen that I think resembles who we are and whatnot. Katie, can you get him to lay down? Um, It's once every time we do Bible study. We get a shadow. Um, I think sometimes people give excuses for things when what what, what they really should say is no thank you right? And just speak your mind. And in this case, Moses essentially just doesn't want to go. And every time he brings up an excuse, God just says, well, I got that. No problem. I'll deal with it. You don't need a mouth. You're fine. I'll even have Aaron with you. I don't need anything. You got that stick. I'll use your stick. You don't need anything. So after all these excuses go through, um, 
essentially God's going to get upset with them. It says in verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. What really ticks God off is that Moses just keeps making excuses. Moses could have said no right from the beginning. And at this point, he finally gets to the point where he just says, I don't have a heart to serve you, Lord. I don't want to serve you. And that's what gets God upset. He's not angry at who am I. He's not angry at who should I send. He's not angry at I need your name. He's not angry at I, they won't listen to me. He's not even angry at I'm slow of tongue and I have things where I, I don't think I can serve you. What gets him angry is that I'm not willing to serve you thing. That heart thing goes. I remember coaching football in my 20s and 30s. And the thing that drove me nuts, I could deal with any kid that came out for football. Because football is a sport where you can put the tall, skinny guys on wide receiver. I can put my short, fat guys at center. I can put any body shape somewhere on that field and they can do their job and perform. And so it's a great sport to coach because you can recruit every kid in your class to come play football with you. It's even your non-football fans. I think that's why it thrives in American schools. It's a great sport. Every kid can be in it. And all I need from them is effort. But when you get a kid, with even the kids with tons of talent, they come in and they won't do what they're supposed to do in their job, it's the most aggravating thing in the world, right? All I need is their heart. And I can give them, if they're willing to serve, they can be successful football players in some way, shape, or form. Or if they're willing to stand in front of somebody really big and just make it so they can't go forward. Just hang on to their ankles and hold on for dear life. That's your job. And I actually had kids where that was their job. I know you can't beat that person on the line. You just need to stop them from getting involved in the play, right? That's your only job. But when you get kids with attitude, the first thing a good coach does is they pull them out of the game. And they set them on the bench until that kid's so aggravated or their parents come up and say, why aren't you playing my superstar athlete? Because your superstar athlete doesn't give me their heart. They just come out and go through the motions. And I need somebody that gives me their heart. And I think God the Father, God the coach, looks at humans the same way. Boy, I'll take any of your problems. I can work with whatever I gave. I made you. I can work with your mouth. But I can't work with a lack of willingness to serve. I can't work with hesitation. It's an issue in parenting, too. One of the things with Grant and Katie growing up, even today, we'll say things like, hey, can you bust the dishes or can you do this? And when the attitude comes up, that's where Steph and I would react because the attitude's the problem. If you can't do it with a good heart, I'll take care of it. We don't need you to bust the dishes. We don't need you to put away the guitar case. Now they feel like they're getting yelled at. Good parenting is dealing with the heart, not dealing with the actions. And I see that so much. And just going through and seeing all these students come through classrooms, the ones with bad parents where the parents worried about the actions and not the heart. And the kid would do what they were asked to do, but they do it with such a bitter heart that they're essentially being disobedient in their heart and they're not learning a thing. And the second you turn their back, they're going to do the exact opposite of what you want. But when the heart's in the right place and you're, you do things willingly, then I think students grow, young people grow up, kids grow up, and they're like, yeah, I'll bust the dishes because this is a chance for me to serve you because I love you. And I think that's what's going on with Moses right now. The heart is what matters. Um, another point on the God's anger when we get angry, we say nasty things. And when we get angry, we flip on a dime. So, well, fine, then I won't do that for you. When we get angry, we start to give up on people. Notice how God expresses his rage. The way that God expresses his anger and frustration against Moses is that he takes away a blessing. 
I was going to heal your mouth, but now I'm going to give you Aaron. Do you see that switch? So God's anger doesn't come out by giving up on Moses. All Moses got to do is walk with his stick, right? But God works with people and he's not going to force Moses to do something that Moses doesn't want to do. We can all be part of God's plan, but we have to be willing to do what God wants us to do to be part of his plan. And when God calls us, we have to be willing to say yes. And if we don't say yes or we don't do it with a good heart, I think we miss out on the blessings God's got for us. Um, This explains the mouth thing, explains why Moses struggled 40 years ago back in Egypt, hasn't gone away. Man, he could have gotten his mouth taken care of by God and he missed out on that opportunity. I think that's horrible. So verse 15, now now that we've changed our plans because God's working with somebody that has free will, now you shall speak to him, Aaron, and put words into Aaron's mouth, his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. I'm still going to talk to you, Moses, but now you don't have to talk to crowds and you don't have to talk to Pharaoh. You just have to talk to your brother, Moses. That's all I'm asking you to do, right? So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. So I'm still talking through you, Moses, but I'm going to go to Aaron. You're going to go to Aaron. And you shall take this rod in your hand, which you shall do the signs. So you're just going to, all you have to do is walk to Egypt and bring a stick. And I'll take care of everything else for you. Um, I want to snap forward to Exodus 40 through 48. What's interesting, um, you don't have to turn there, I'm not going to read there, but we're going to see later in Exodus that Aaron is going to be the head of the Levitical priesthood. His voice, his willingness to serve, we don't see these arguments from Aaron. Aaron's going to actually minister. Think of the blessings Aaron's going to get out of this whole thing. His descendants are going to serve in the Holy of Holies. His descendants will see the Shekinah glory of God in the temple for a living. His descendants will sing worship tunes all day in rotating shifts around the temple. His servants get to have the first cuts of the offering sacrifices. They're first in line at every barbecue for the next thousand years, right? Aaron's descendants are going to hang around the throne in eternity. When the Lord returns and we're in the Lord's kingdom, it's going to be the Levitical priesthood, Aaron's descendants, that are going to be around the throne and get to serve God and get all the honors of the kingdom eternal honors to those who trust God. And that's going to be what Aaron gets. Moses' descendants will get none of that. And that's what I think God gets frustrated with Moses. Moses isn't even going to get to live in the promised land ever. God's going to use him, but he's never going to get to see the awesomeness that God has in his life. This is how we felt in our 30s, and we thought we just wasted a decade of our life not serving God. What did we just miss out on? What kind of ministry did we miss out on? What people did we not have in our home because we weren't willing to serve the Lord? And we don't want to do that anymore. So you start figuring out, how do I talk to everybody I know about Jesus every day, all the time? And that becomes a way that you live. So verse 18, so Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, And he said to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. No resistance from the father, right? I'm sure the father-in-law was probably like, 
great. I'm glad you're going to go start your own life because he's kind of hanging around doing kids work in Jethro's house. So in verse 18, the burning bush has faded. Imagine at the end of this conversation with God, it had to be oppressively silent in the middle of the wilderness, right? Like, did that just happen? What's going on? And Moses had to really face the idea of, do you want to obey God or not? Because God actually stops talking to him. And here's what's going to happen. Brethren, when he says, I want to go see my brethren who are in Egypt, that's not brethren like all the children of Israel. That's brethren like immediate family, direct relatives. I want to go see if my mom's still around, right? He hasn't checked in on his brothers, his sisters. He's probably got nephews and nieces he's never met. So he wants, that's what he tells Jethro. Notice he mentions nothing about God to Jethro. He's not coming back saying, I just talked to God, because Jethro might not have reacted to that well. Um, but he says, go in peace. Yeah, you can take off. Um, goes, Moses' desire to follow God. Another way to read this is, it's really cool how Moses does not just walk out on his obligations. He actually asks permission of the earthly authority that's over him at that time which is kind of cool. I often see college students that are like, I'm going to drop out of college and go serve the Lord. And it's like, that's great, but did God put you in college or did God not put you in college? And you got to think through those. So you think you're following the Lord. Maybe you should make sure that's confirmed and that you check out and make sure that you're not just walking out on people that are depending on you, right? And he doesn't do that. He goes and he talks to his boss, boss slash father-in-law, says, can I take off? Can I get some leave so I can go do this thing? Yeah, sure, you're good. So he's got the open door. Respecting and honoring authority is consistently and always part of God's plan in the Bible. It is never the case that you disrespect people to serve the Lord. And Moses doesn't, of course, doesn't do that either. Um, Which is kind of cool. So Jethro gives him vacation. He goes on vacation. Verse 19, now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. This is a nice assurance. But you start to wonder, is Moses dragging his feet between verses 18 and 19? He asked permission to go, but now God has to tell him to go again? So how much time just passed between when he got permission to go and when he's actually going to leave? Um, so God gives him a word of knowledge. The knowledge is something that, a word of knowledge is something that a human would have no way of knowing that God shares with people and then they know it. So knowing that all the people who were going to kill Moses are now dead, is a good thing to know before he takes off. Thanks, Shadow. That was nice. Um, remember Moses is writing this, so he's writing about himself not doing what he's been asked to do, which I think is really cool. He makes Moses, as a writer, seems to want to make it really clear to us as a reader that none of what's going to happen, the wonders to come, had nothing to do with Moses or Moses' plan. And I think it's kind of cool because when he's writing this, he's Moses. But when he's recalling it and writing the story back, he wants us to know that he's not Moses. He's just some guy in the wilderness that God used. And Moses doesn't take any credit for what's about to happen. He wasn't even willing to leave after he got permission. God had to tell him again. Then Moses, verse 20, took his wife, her name was Zipporah, and his sons, plural, so he's had another son, and sets them on a donkey. And he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand which is nice because that was his shepherd's stick, but now it's God's stick. Apparently there's another child, so maybe there was a lot of time that passed between when he saw the burning bush and when God tells him to go again. Um, So he does it. So 
he's going to get more revelation here because he takes a step when he actually leaves town. And this is the same thing that happened to Abraham. Remember when Abraham took one step in the right direction, God gave even more information and revelation. So Moses, he takes the, the thing he's gone. He's so we've got so far in this story, a reluctant guy brings his family. He's got a donkey with him and a stick and he's going to change an entire nation. Okay. And the Lord said to Moses, so he's on his journey. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, the stick, and I will harden his heart so that he will not let people go. So God's showing us again how he's going to work with humans here. If the Pharaoh has set himself against Israel, then he's set himself against Israel's God too. So sometimes we're going to see that God hardens hearts, Exodus 4.21, what we just read. Sometimes we're going to see that God, that Pharaoh hardens, it says that Pharaoh will harden his own heart. Exodus 8.15 is going to say that. And then in Exodus 7.13, it simply says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened past tense without saying who did it. In other words, when God works with people with free will, he doesn't force us to do things we don't want to do. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God is okay with that. God lets that happen. God even works with Pharaoh to harden that heart even more. Um, And there's this relationship that God has with humans in the same way that he doesn't force Moses. He just has to keep asking him. He's not forcing Pharaoh to do anything here. Um, When God comes into people's lives, it either engenders love and change like with Moses, or it's going to engender hardness of heart and anger like it will with Pharaoh. And that's pretty consistent when anybody that has Jesus in them talks to a new person. You either get excited that you met a Jesus person, or if you're not a Jesus person, you're like, oh, another Jesus person. And it frustrates people. And you get one of two reactions, um, which is awesome if you're a Jesus person, because you can see whether or not you're dealing with somebody who likes you right away. Because if you're like, are you a Jesus person? And they're like, yes. You're like, great. you got a brother or sister in Christ. You know who you're dealing with. Awesome. Or if you're people like, they're... I don't know, like, and they have to guess who you are and why you're asking such a crazy question. And you know you're dealing with somebody who needs Jesus. So you're either going to go to work or you're going to be at rest and and that sort of thing. It's not different here. Moses' reaction and Pharaoh's reaction are two very different reactions. So God allows people to reject him uh, and he gives them up to their sin. And when he removes himself, we harden and we corrupt. Um, Verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. Again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And then he's saying, just keep putting the Lord right in front of Pharaoh. Keep saying Jehovah and Yahweh and Elohim. Just keep throwing that out. Um, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel, my son, is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. In the past, we've talked about firstborns with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, and that God doesn't necessarily, firstborn is a title that's ascribed. And we saw that with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis. Firstborn is not a biological birth order. It's a title that's given to the favored son that will get the blessing. So this is a super important verse. And the first time I was flying through them, but then I kept coming back to it. And I'm like, wait a second, this is a whole theology thing. Because in the end, when he presents this to Pharaoh, God is taking Israel as his firstborn son, which means Israel as a nation is going to inherit the blessing, yes? And throughout all of Genesis, we followed the blessing through these people. 
So if Israel has the blessing and this whole thing with Pharaoh is going to give them that and he's going to claim it, then it makes total sense that when they won't release his firstborn, he's going to kill Egyptian firstborn, all of them, right? Because that's the last curse that's going to happen. So this firstborn thing is a big deal. With that inheritance, we know that adoption still counts. Genesis 48.5, when Jacob brings uh, Ephraim and Manasseh as his children, he adopts them and gives them blessing, right? So we know that that works in God's rule. So as a nation, no matter what happens to Israel, they're adopted sons, and anyone who wants to come into that kingdom can. We'll see that in Leviticus. And then with Jesus Christ, it's made very clear because Jesus inherited both the kingship and the priesthood, and he can let anybody into the kingdom he wants to, which is why we say we're covered by Jesus because we inherit the firstborn privileges of Israel when we accept Christ. Because we accept Christ, we accept him as king, right? Um, Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's no slave nor free, there's no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see what Paul was doing there? He's referencing this idea that when you accept Christ, you become an inheritor or an heir of that promise. Super cool. So we got a new section. This is a peculiar passage. If you've read ahead a little bit, I thought this would be the first passage we could just skip it and not do it, but that would break our rules. We can't skip these. I've never heard a sermon on this next passage, ever. Um, So here's the passage. I'll read it, and then we'll talk about it. By the way, when I read this, notice that we just got done talking about God's firstborn, and God's firstborn is Israel. Now we're going to talk about Moses' kids. There actually is a connection here. It's just really kind of a weird one. So... Verse 24, and it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to kill him. Just seems like it comes out of nowhere. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. This was the verse I was thinking to read at your wedding. So, and so he let him go because this is when you called me and said you want to read something at the wedding and oh this would be great so he let him go and then she said you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision okay so we have this argument between Moses and his wife on the way to doing the wonders of God Moses has already lost out on tons of blessings because he argued with God but now his wife she's going to miss out on the blessings too. We don't even hear about his wife again for a long time. She doesn't get to see the miracles. She doesn't get to see any of this stuff. And clearly we have a context here where there's something in Moses' life that had to, and it came to pass that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. So I've of course went into the Hebrew on this because I'm like, wait, the Lord tried to kill Moses? That doesn't make sense. And that's accurate. It shouldn't. It's an odd thing in English because came to pass on the way is derek a road it's a figurative passage and it can be a literal passage so you could read that as moses was going through his life there had to be something here that be there's a journey that moses is on and he's got a sin in his life that has to get dealt with so he's taken the first steps he started to follow god once we follow god god starts to convict us of things 
So I'm thinking Moses woke up and he said, you know, there's really only one rule as a Hebrew, and that is we're supposed to circumcise our kids. Turns to Zipporah and says, you know, I feel like I'm going to go talk to all these elders of Israel. And if they know my kids aren't circumcised, I don't even count as a Hebrew. Like I haven't, we haven't done the thing that we're supposed to do. And if they're out in Midian, Zipporah, daughter of Jethro, the priest, maybe the circumcision thing's not part of their tradition. And it's an odd thing to introduce to your wife to say, I'd like to cut my son's penis. It's just a weird thing. So here we are on the road, on the way, and the Lord's basically convicting Moses saying, you got to deal with this sin in your life. You haven't done what you've been asked to do. You got to get right. So at the encampment, which can mean a camp or an inn, it's anywhere you settle down while you're on a journey, right? Met him as pagash, which means to encounter or have contact with. So God may have actually, this might have actually been a kind of a Jacob-like dream where there was actually a wrestling match or some sort of contact. Sought means bakash, to seek or desire something. So God contacts Moses with the desire and the desire is, to kill Moses. The word muth means to die. We've ran into it before in Genesis, but it can mean to die literally, or it can equally mean to die figuratively. So God wants Moses to die to himself. If God really wanted to kill Moses literally, he could just stop his heart, right? There wouldn't be a struggle or a battle here, but he wants, the way Moses writes this is, I had to die. Remember, Moses is the author. It came to pass on the way to the camp that the Lord met me and sought to kill me. He wanted something to die. And that was, I was holding out something that was God's. And I look at this and we've seen him deal with the fear of what's outside, the fear of what's inside disease and that sort of things he can't control, fear of his own disabilities, fear of what other people would think of him. And now we're seeing that Moses has to deal with this fear of there's a hidden sin and he's not even really writing it out for us. Now there's something in Moses's life that's got to go. And I think we deal with that a lot, that we have things in our life that are hidden sins. Moses camps up, he encounters God, and God wants him to kill this thing that's hidden, this part of him that's there. And so I'm reading that figuratively because I don't think the literal makes any sense at all. Because God if God seeks to kill someone, he just kills them, right? So the figurative here, which is an accurate interpretation, works there too. Um, we think as humans that there's such a thing as a hidden sin. There's not. There's no such thing as a hidden sin. Um, and Moses is figuring this out on his way to serving the Lord, which is a great place to figure it out. Um, I also just like that Moses had a wife that was upset with him and furious at him. And I like the image of her doing the cutting work. And by the way, the obsidian or the flint that got used, you could heat those rocks up and they're surgically precise. So obsidian gets used in surgery rooms today. Um, it's it's still one of the most um, clean cuts that you can get because it holds a wonderfully sharp edge, but it's also one of the most sanitary things you can do. So obsidian doesn't really hold bacteria and those kinds of things because it is a rock. So you could heat it up, and if you cut with a heated up obsidian rock, you'd actually cauterize while you cut, which would be perfect for removing foreskin, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have to do that sort of thing, that would be a really humane to do it. So that idea that it mentions a stone, I just thought was an incidentally, a sharp stone um, would be an incidentally accurate kind of thing is that that is and still is one of the ways to get a great cut. But that's a, a geek point. I'll move on. 
And the Lord said to Aaron, verse 27, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words that the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. I wish we would have heard like how Moses knew to take a trip and go find Moses or how Aaron knew to take off. And that would have been a cool story to add. But Moses wasn't there and he didn't add it. But we get this piece. The two brothers come together. Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. So literally Aaron's doing all the talking and Moses just sits in a chair in the back and holds his stick. And Moses is serving God just by holding a stick. And I think that that's kind of an interesting image. And Aaron gets to do all the FaceTime, but the one the Lord's actually talking to is the guy behind the curtain. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. And so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. Notice this isn't that they heard Moses or or Aaron. Um, They heard the Lord in verse 28. Moses and Aaron told all the words of the Lord that had sent them. And then it says in verse 31, so the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel. So they're believing the Lord. Um, and they're not necessarily believing Aaron or Moses. Um, and it says the Lord visited, the Lord had visited the children of Israel. And I think Moses is again, writing it that way. Cause he wants us to know this wasn't Moses. This was God. So Moses in the end is just needed to walk. He has to sit there and listen to Aaron do all the talking. Um, We can assume then that Moses was hanging back and not moving when he was told to because there's a child that gets had along the way. Um, And as we wrap up this chapter, like it's, I just kept coming back to how Moses wrote this in a way that there's no way to think Moses is doing anything right when you read this chapter. He loses blessing. He knows at this point in his life that he's lost those blessings. There's so many Christians willing to take a step only to find out years later that they got to combat their own pride. They got to combat their own like arrogance, their, their, their thought that they know how to do God's work better than God does. And we, we live in a country of Christians that think like that. Well, I got to just do what God tells me to do. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do this. And you're just not necessarily following the Lord. But when you see a man of God follow the Lord, the way he writes about it is, I didn't do anything. I resisted God at every point, but God was going to do a work. And eventually all I had to do is carry a stick. And that's what I did. Right? God's willing to work with people like Moses, even though he had a whole tribe of Levites living in, in, in Egypt, following the law with circumcised kids. Right? He chose this guy because this guy had given up on life. He was broken. So we see that in the Bible over and over and over again. God uses the shepherd more than he uses the prince. And in this case, he broke the prince, turned him into a shepherd, and 40 years later chose to use him. I want to be like that. I don't want to be the prince or think I know something that I don't. I want to be the broken shepherd that goes, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I just don't want to be like Moses. Help me say yes one or two steps before Moses so I can see the blessings you're going to give. And I'll tell you, it just keeps working that way. I'll tell you more about stupid mistakes later. But in this case, we got plenty from Moses because you know I got lots of stupid mistakes. Um, And Moses wants us to recognize how unwilling he was, how stupid he was, how many mistakes he made, how many errors he made. 
um, so that we don't think that it's us, it's God's. Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners, right? And I love that passage because, and he says, it's a worthy saying in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful, worthy saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the chief. That's where Moses is at. He's like, look, God came in to save all of Israel through an idiot like me. And he's writing a whole chapter like that. And we see Paul do the same thing. There's something about mature believers where they know their sin well enough to know, I don't have anything to brag about. God works despite what an idiot I am. And isn't that wonderful? And isn't it graceful? And isn't God good that he would still work through us like that? It's all about God, despite how Moses feels and despite what his failings are. It's there. So the promise in Exodus 3.18 holds totally true, right? God's going to do what he's going to do. God asks us to give up a life that we didn't even give ourselves, right? So I think this is a great request of God. He's saying, give me your life. And he gives us the life to start with. We screw it up. And that's what he wants. He has a life that doesn't mean anything anyways, because we can live a life where we pursue ourselves, we doubt ourselves, we're selfish about things. We can do self, 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 and it means nothing. And that's all God wants is this nothing life that we've led on our own. Just give me that, and I'll take that stick in your hand, and I'll turn you into the one of the most famous characters in the Bible. That's my God. That's the God I've gotten to know. It's the same God that's talking to Moses, the same one that puts a spirit in Paul and Peter and these disciples, these fishermen, these shepherds. And he's going to use those. All he wants us to do is proclaim his name and say what we told him. And the cool part is, unlike Moses, we got the whole Bible where God tells us what he said. And we just got to repeat it to people, right? That's all he's asking us to do is say what I said, put me in front. And it glorifies us when we do that. God pays a price for Moses and Moses pays a price with his unbelief. Um, but God essentially, at the very end, the only thing Moses gave to God was a willingness to take a few steps in the right direction. And God just works with them. And God does the rest and moves it on. Next time, we will uh, we'll come back and I'll probably start with verse 27 because it's kind of the beginning of what happens in Egypt, right? Um, so I just wanted to cover that real quick because it is the end of that chapter. We'll, cut, we'll review that real quick, and then we'll get into all that stuff. I'm going to really, I think we've heard these stories so many times. Not this chapter, but the next two, three chapters. We've heard them, and we've seen them in movie form, and we've seen them on flannel boards in Sunday school, and that sort of thing. We'll go through them fairly quick, but there are some really kooky theories about the natural like plausibility of the plagues. So I'll try to review some of those and get to them, but... Um, you know, essentially, at this cha- these little chapters like that Genesis 26, these chapters that are kind of in between where people preach, the more I spend t- time on the more I think about it, I'm like, boy, that's the stuff where God actually matures me and teaches me. Because I'm so inspired that Moses was this big of a dingbat, right? And it just makes me think, why, I'm like that. I doubt God. I don't think I have ability and talent. Um, and then you think, but the Lord's telling me to do it, so I'll go do it. And I told you the story of my first day in Madison when I'm in that, my first doctorate class and I was all intimidated and all these people are super smart around me. And you just come home and you pray, Lord, just help me get through this because I'm not as smart as these people. And I'll never be as smart as these people. But 
help me to just be diligent and to just go every day and do my job and do my work. And then all of a sudden you're going down the thing and you got a robe on and they're calling you a doctor. And you're like, wow, that was pretty cool, Lord. And then you think, what now? And the, the answer is always the same. Just go tell them what I told you. And I'll put you in positions where you can do that with more and more people. Then you wake up and you're looking at a room with thousands of people in it and you're on the stage behind a podium and you just get to say things like, I love the Lord, I'm a Jesus person and let's talk about whatever I'm here to talk about. And you put the Lord in front and just share it and then those opportunities just kind of come and it's wonderful. And I think we're at a point in Moses' life, he has no idea what's about to happen. All he knows is Pharaoh's going to likely kill him because when he goes in and says this stuff, that's done. But he's an 80-year-old. He's past the point where he cares what people think about him. And he's moved on to the point where he's like, eh, let's see what happens. And I think that's a great place to be. He can be a grumpy old man and it's going to work for him. He's got nothing left to lose. And he's got a wife that throws bloody flesh at him, right? So it's kind of like, yeah, okay, Lord, I'll go do this with Pharaoh. And we'll see what happens. But there's a point where he's just throwing it all away. Wouldn't it have been cool if he would have done that back when he was 40? back when he was 20, when he just had so much more life ahead of him that God could redeem and do something. But it takes him until he's 80 to get to that point. God's still going to use him. And I think that's part of why people are living longer at this period of history, is that they they don't have as much of the Bible to change their life when they're young. So God has to give them longer lives just so they can figure it out the hard way. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for Moses. Lord, we thank you for characters in the Bible that we can relate to, and we thank you for the guidance that they give. Thank you for the word of God, Lord. You don't have to talk to us from a burning bush because we can hear what you said from the burning bush, and we know that you said it. Um, Lord, help us to just share what you said to everyone, and that is your people are precious, that you love them, that you're going to redeem them, that your nation, Israel, and all of us Gentiles that have uh, accepted Jesus, Lord, we're we're your children. We're your inheritance. And Lord, we have your blessing and it just abounds in our life. Thank you for giving us a joy and a life and a light that we can share with everybody we know. Lord, we don't care if they get angry. We don't care if their hearts harden like Pharaoh's. Lord, we just want to share that you are God and that you love your children. Um, And Lord, everybody's invited to that. So we just ask you to help us to not doubt ourselves. Lord, what a horrible thing. You made us. You made us exactly as we are. Erase the doubt in our life, Lord. Help us to not worry about what other people think, that they won't accept us, Lord. Man, that's not our job to worry about. That's yours. They don't have to accept us. They have to accept you. Um, Lord, Moses doubted his own willingness and at one point just said like send somebody else or help us to never do that we can read your word we can see these examples we don't have any excuse to do that Lord. we can see that it hurt moses it, it removed a blessing and lord we don't want that in our lives i want the blessing lord and just give it to us we want to do what you want us to do and we really don't care what people think we don't care about our own shortcomings we don't care about what we have lord you'll take whatever we have and you'll use it Let us just to love you and and share your grace, Lord. Help us to proclaim your word and tell people what you said. You said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and anyone that believes in you shall never die. And Lord, we just embrace that. We love that. Thank you for everybody in this room, the calling you've put on our lives, Lord, the way in which you've talked to us and brought you into your fold. Lord, we just thank you for that. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that, that 
needs to give up something to you, to confess something to you, help them to go home tonight, go to their rooms tonight, and just pray to you and end it. To get rid of anything in their life that's preventing them from doing your work, Lord. We've taken those first steps, but Lord, we want to be pure and wholly devoted to you, that we can come before you as a pure and a spotless bride, that the sins in our life are things that you've removed, Lord, because we're not even good enough to get rid of our own sin. Lord, we need you to just come in and do that for us. So help do that, redeem us. Lord, help us to have fellowship with one another, to live life together, to share our struggles with each other, and just thank you for that gift. And Lord, I just pray you bless the ice cream tonight. May it be tasty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. <laughs>